You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we confess you are indeed the faithful one. You are great. And when we are faithless, you are faithful. We ask this morning as we come to your word that you would speak clearly to your people, that you would build up your church through your word, that we might be equipped for all that you call us to as your people in this place We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. Happy Reformation Sunday. I got, that's good. I did get, I got an amen last service. Uh, October 31st marks not just the cultural holiday of Halloween, but I would argue of more importance. Marks the annual remembrance and and consideration of the Protestant Reformation that began October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed a list of 95 theses to the door at uh, the Wittenberg Castle. And what followed was that Protestant reformers, imperfect men, were used by God to bring renewal and reformation to the church, primarily by calling her back to the gospel as the central unifying Christian truth, that salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by any other way, not by our own works so that no one may boast, and it called the church back to the centrality and authority of God's revealed word, the authority of the scriptures, God's word revealed for his people to equip us in all matters of life and godliness. That it is to be our first and final authority in the lives of believers. It's our first and final authority in the instruction and equipping of the church so that that the church might be a faithful witness of the gospel to testify to the glory of the Lord in the world. And we believe that God is always working reformation, always working renewal in his church and will persevere his church all the way to the end. So when you hear the knock-knock this evening of some kid in a mask or cape or something, celebrate, not the handing out of candy, but maybe, maybe the knock-knock will remind you of the hammer on the door at the Wittenberg Chapel that Martin Luther took in hand that sparked renewal and revival in the church that you and I are, are, have benefited from greatly. So, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Amen? Now, with God's Word as our first and final authority, let's open it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And grab your Bibles and turn there. We're at the end of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 5, verses 12 through verse 28, which is the end of the section, the end of the chapter, the end of the letter. If you need a Bible, you can... Uh, Slip your hand up, and uh, one of our strike team folks would love to give one to you so you can read along. 
Uh, the next couple of weeks, we'll jump into 2 Thessalonians. There's three chapters in 2 Thessalonians, and we'll essentially tackle one a week. Um, first, second, and third chapters of 2 Thessalonians in the coming weeks. Um, but before we do, we want to finish this first letter strong. Uh, Paul has some things to say to us. The focus of this whole letter is what I'm, I'm kind of referring to as an encouraging preparation letter. Paul's encouraging these young Christians to, to keep doing what they're doing, right? To, to keep hold on to the faith that they have, to keep loving one another well, to keep sharing the gospel with others and loving their neighbors and keep being faithful. And he's doing that in light of the preparation he's giving them of what's to come, the age to come, the glory to come. And so he's essentially framing out for them how to live faithfully now in light of what's coming in light of the glory to be revealed. And we've tackled much of that already. And in this closing section, the big idea comes right from Paul's benediction, verses 23 and 24. A benediction is a blessing, if you will, a closing prayer. We give a benediction at the end of our corporate worship gatherings as a a way of um, kind of confirming and encouraging and equipping you with a little nugget of truth as you go, a blessing for you. And this one kind of frames out Paul's entire letter. So in reminding these brothers and sisters of all that God has done for them and will do for them, it's a reminder to not neglect the work that God is still doing now in them and through them. There's work yet to be done. There's life in Christ to be lived, and they can have confidence that God will be faithful to give them all that's needed to live this life to which they've been Called. And that's where I think we will find some encouragement this morning, too, from the end of this letter. So let's read our text, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, the end of the letter. I'm actually going to start in verse 11. It's a good therefore transition. So we'll start in 11, but our text starts in 12. Paul writes, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now we focused a good amount of our time these past number of weeks looking forward to that day, that glorious, terrible, and wondrous, and beautiful, and awe-inspiring day of the Lord. That final return of Jesus. How glorious that day will be. Amen? 
I'm just going to get that amen in early, get you warmed up. And laced throughout Paul's letter is this reminder after reminder of all that God has already done for the Thessalonians. He's called them. He's entrusted them with the gospel. And he's encouraging them to not forget or neglect all that God has done in them as well. This, there's a tension we're holding in place here. The hope and looking forward to all that comes next and the reality of living here and now. That in the now, right now, today, there's work to be done. There's still growth to be had. There's still maturing to take place. At least I hope so for myself. Maybe you do for yourselves as well. There's hopefully more fruit to be grown and harvested. So in remembering all that God has done and all that God will do for us, we can't neglect all that God still will do in us. In remembering all that God has done for us and will do for us, We can't neglect what he's still to do in us. So that living in light of that day, that glorious day of the return of Jesus, we're reminded that there is work still to be done and we can trust that God is at work in us by his grace. There's work for us to do and we can trust that God's at work in us. So we're going to look at this text in three parts. Our work that we're called to, God's work, and the reminder that it is all grace. Verse 11 serves as the bridge, which is why I read it, between the beginning of chapter 5 the closing section, and this closing section at the end of chapter 5. Therefore, Paul writes, in light of all that I've told you, based on the hope that you have in the, in the coming day of the Lord, where the promise of salvation will be fully, rea- fully realized, encourage one another in that truth. Don't forget that, how great and glorious and beautiful that will be. And, he says, build one another up. Building is labor. There's work to be done. Build one another up, he says, just as you are doing. And then Paul goes on to outline this work that we're called to do. This is what we're called to walk in as Christians. Point one this morning focuses on our work. And and just to be fair, we're going to spend more time here in this first point than the other two because Paul devotes almost all of his words in this section to this idea. So just bear with me. Point one is long. So I want to say point two, and you're like, we're not there yet? Trust me, our work. In these final instructions from Paul, he gives 15 or so commands between verses 12 and 22. These are instructions. These are do and not do type statements. Remember, Paul's saying, in light of that day, here's now how you live. And these instructions can be kind of grouped into like four different groupings, if you will, or four different ideas. First, there's a few of these commands that are grouped together, how, they should re- how the Christians here should relate to their spiritual leaders. Second, how they should relate to one another. Third, how they should relate to their circumstances. It's the internal stuff going on in their own hearts. And fourth, how they should relate to divine revelation, how their corporate life of worship together should look. We'll cover each one together. First, how we're to, con- uh, we're to consider how to relate to those who have spiritual authority in our lives. This comes from verses 12 and 13. Paul uses language like this. We ask you to respect, to esteem in very, excuse me, esteem very highly in love. The assumption here is that Paul is, is, is making 
He's assuming that they understand that there's people who are in authority in this local church. Elders and deacons and those who labor, those who work hard as, as shepherds and mentors and disciplers have the responsibility, Paul says, to admonish. It's not a word we use very often. It's to instruct and correct. We don't use admonish much, but in this context, I admonish people regularly when they don't use their blinkers. They don't hear me admonishing them, but I am admonishing them, right? That idea of correction, I think in this case, it's probably a little more gentle than I tend to be. It's to instruct and to correct, right? So there's people God has placed in our lives to what? To help us, to correct us, to grow us in the local congregation and kind of with one another. And notice, it's not just a blanket love for them, but because of their work, he says. Paul emphasizes this with a young pastor named Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5. He says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy Excuse me, let the elders who rule well, miss the important part, let the elders who rule well, who lead well, be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor, work in preaching and teaching. The emphasis there is on the word well, that these are faithful leaders in their laboring. So it's not just respect them or think well of them, but to esteem them, hold them in high regard. And Paul says, in love. I think love's a significant component to this instruction. Because you can respect someone and not love them. I mean, think about politics, right? I mean, just for a minute. I won't make you think about politics for very long, but just for a moment. You can respect someone for the office that they hold, or you can respect the office and not love them. I mean, you can love them because God tells us to love people, but you don't like, care about them in your heart. You might actually disdain them personally. Just saying done thinking about politics, right? Paul says, those who work hard to shepherd you, who labor well in caring for your soul, are worthy of your respect and your love. Remember the family-like affection. Paul's not dealing with hierarchies here as much as he's dealing with family. And it's spread all over this letter. That's what Paul's talking about. And I must say, I just want to be very clear, I am regularly blessed by Pastor Devin by our elder team, by Mitch and Marty who are in our eldership pipeline, by our staff team. They labor well to care for the people of River City. It is my privilege to serve alongside them, to be counted as one of them. uh, Kyle and Liz and Jordan and Cammie and Ann on our staff team, along with our elders and pastoral staff, though none of us is perfect, I want to just really clearly commend these servant leaders to you. They love you well. Imperfectly, yes. But they're laboring well to love and serve you. Unless this sound remarkably self-serving coming from one of your pastors, there's two other things I'd like to highlight. One, Paul emphasizes those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. It's not an either-or statement for the shepherd in a local church, or the pastor, or the under-shepherd, if you will, the, the pastor or elder in a local church. Paul says it's important that they, are, they, they live lives worthy of respect and honor and are also known as being among the flock, the among you and over you. We can't lose sight of the tension of that statement that Paul gives. That those of us who are called to shepherd are also sheep. 
among you as fellow sheep, fellow sinners turned saints, right? Fellow disciples daily in need of God's grace. That We have been called in this season as elders to take responsibility for the souls of others, and we hold that tension and so as to not get it out of balance. And Paul just makes that note. Those who serve among you and are given responsibility over you. Two, Paul says, is to close out this little section on how Christians are to relate to those who have spiritual authority in their lives, he says, be at peace among yourselves. Manage yourselves well. And I think the connotation here is don't make it harder on those who are called to lead you. Essentially, it's a gentle way of saying, don't make me come back there. Not really. But the idea there is like living peaceably together. You're together. You're family, he's saying. So the first work that Paul calls the church to consider is how we relate to those God has placed in spiritual authorities in our lives. And we're, we're, we do well to consider that. That's the first thing Paul calls us to, the first work. The second, he says, we're to consider how we relate to one another, verses 14 and 15. Four things Paul says here, three individual commands and then one that kind of ties them together. He says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Now these seem pretty self-explanatory, but I'd like to highlight just a few things. First, in admonishing the idle, uh, admonish and idle are also two words we don't use every day. But this isn't the first time that Paul will highlight idleness. The idea here of being idle is, to, is not doing anything. Think about a car that is in neutral. It is idling. It's on. It's not going anywhere. Paul infers it earlier in his instruction about how to live now, and then he'll address it head on, which we'll get to in a few weeks in 2 Thessalonians. He's calling them and he's calling us to the reality that there is no sitting on the bench. There is no cruise control or autopilot for the faithful follower of Jesus. And Paul says that together we're all charged to admonish that is correct the idle, to encourage them to intentional and meaningful work. Notice, this ministry is not just for those who are called to lead. He's talking to the church that we care for each other in this way, that we admonish one another in this way. He also says this, encourage the faint-hearted. Again, this seems clear. Those who are weary, those who are emotionally spent, their hearts are faint. He says, encourage them. Encourage them in the truth. Show compassion. Be generous with your time and your treasure to build them up because God has given us one another to be a comfort and to be a help to each other, which leads to th- Paul's third instruction in this section, help the weak. Again, these are wonderfully obvious that Paul's t- giving us these things. In what ways have you experienced the help and the kindness of someone else at just the right time? And in what ways has God enabled you to be a help for someone else. Similar to encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak is full of compassion and care and a desire to show love and grace to someone in need. And then Paul ties them all together with this. He says, and be patient with them all, which is important because sometimes we feel compelled to be kind and generous and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to extend grace. 
where clearly we recognize that was not of me. That was clearly a work of the Holy Spirit that caused that level of compassion and mercy to come from me because that doesn't normally come from me. And other times, we're impatient. And what comes out of our mouths or comes to our minds is this again? We're still talking about this? How many times do I have to tell you? Just me? Okay. And Paul is saying, don't be like that exasperated, impatient parent who's frustrated with their child's slow progress. By the way, I am preaching that to myself. You all can just be in on that. He says, be patient with them all. And then he says, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's this looking out for one another that's happening here in this section. Jesus took the Old Testament picture and instruction of of, of an eye for an eye and turned it on its head a little bit to say, yes, fair restitution is a good thing, he says, but have you considered mercy? It's one thing to restrain revenge, which is good. It's a whole other thing to extend good when evil is thrown at us. And so the scripture is clear that the command is to seek to do good to one another, that is towards brothers and sisters, and everyone. I love that Paul just like blankets that. By the way, in case you think anyone is excluded, they're not. (laughs) And to everyone, just in case you didn't know. Seek to do good, show mercy, show compassion. And none of these are new commands. It's a reminder of the kind of work we're called to consider as how we relate to one another as sisters and brothers. Third, Paul calls us to consider how we relate to our circumstances. This is verses 16 and 18. This is where Paul turns a little to the internal work of the heart, right? What's going on in here as it relates to the circumstances in which we find ourselves. And Paul says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Easy, right? Right? Rejoice always, like always, always, really, even when things are real bad. Yep. Pray without ceasing, even when life seems absolutely crazy and insane. Yep. Give thanks in, in all circumstances, like all of them, like even when the diagnosis is, is, is bad. Yep. And this is not some kind of fake Christian platitude, well, just give thanks in all circumstances, man. Like it's a lot better on a coffee mug than it is in real life, these, this passage. But, but that's the reality. We're called to give thanks and rejoice and pray in all things. Why? Because we actually believe, we have faith that God hears us that he cares for those who are his, that he is always working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans chapter 8. I I say this to my kids all the time, that praying and asking God for help is evidence that we actually believe that he can do something. If we didn't believe that he could do something, we wouldn't ask. And so in big and small, we surrender our own wills to God and ask God, be God. So, so, so here's what I think is happening here. If believing, Romans 8, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, believing that truth looks like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, rejoicing and praying and giving thanks. 
I can rejoice and give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Well, not because the circumstances are fun. Cancer's not fun. COVID's not fun. Loss isn't fun. But while we experience all of these things, we recognize that we are not just the sum total of our experiences. That it is by faith we can join Paul in saying that all our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So we're called to consider our part and how we relate to our circumstances. There's work, heart work, and action work to do as it relates to this. What does it look like to rejoice and to seek the Lord in prayer continually and to give thanks in all circumstances? And finally, finally point one, uh, we're called to consider how we relate to divine revelation and our corporate life of worship together. This is the final grouping of instructions that Paul gives here. Listen to what Paul says. He says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to the good and abstain from every form of evil. Essentially, we're asking the question, how do we understand and interpret what we are receiving? How do we labor in discernment? That is, sorting between what is true and what is false. So under this umbrella command of don't quench the spirit, Paul gives these instructions, this contrast of how to do and not do that. He says, do not despise prophecies, instead test everything and hold fast to the good and abstain from evil. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to quench the spirit? The picture here is, uh, 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 the illustration is one of putting out a fire. And often in the New Testament, the spirit of God is compared to a flame or a fire. And the idea here Paul's saying, hey, don't extinguish the fire that God has begun among you. The Holy Spirit is at work among you. Look at you, Thessalonians. You you believe in Jesus. You, You didn't believe before, and now you do. You've been utterly transformed. You've been brought from death to life, and not in a happy land of, like, cultural acceptance of this new faith. You've come to faith in Jesus in the midst of really really hard persecution. They actually don't like you. And look at you. You're, you're thriving. This is a miraculous moving of the Holy Spirit. Paul's reminding them the Holy Spirit is at work among you in comforting you in your trials, equipping you to use your gifts, uh, holding, helping you to hold fast in the midst of persecution and hardship. He's given you these things to build up the church. He's essentially saying, don't settle. Don't box it all up and say, we're good. We have enough Jesus now. We're good. If I could borrow from Paul's words to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, he says, fan into flame the gift of God that's been given to you. So how do you not quench the spirit or to say it in the positive way? How do you add fuel to the fire? Well, Paul gives these things. He says, rather than despise prophecies, test them. Now the question is, well, what does that mean? We can't do the deep dive now into all of God's spiritual gifts, but, but I want to maybe help bring a little clarity here. Paul speaks really clearly to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, that the gifts that God gives his people are for the edification of the church, not for the, the building of little k kingdoms or the exaltation of the names of those who might wield those gifts. They're given 
to brothers and sisters in the context of the local church for the work of ministry. And so when Paul says, don't despise it when God gives a gift, he's saying, don't despise what God might be doing in building up his church. And the one Paul highlights here is prophecy. Now, we're not told exactly why Paul is highlighting this particular gift. He has something to say about the gifts in 1 Corinthians. I encourage you to go and read those and study those this week. But, but the Thessal- we don't know why he's highlighting that. Perhaps the Thessalonians are just a little too stodgy. Maybe they're a little too um, uh, conservative, not politically, but spiritually. Maybe they're reacting a little bit to abuses of, of spiritual authority, abuses of manifestations of the Spirit among them. We don't really know. But, but Paul does say very clearly, when God the Holy Spirit is at work among you, don't despise it. Instead, he says, test it. I heard one pastor say that before he steps into the pulpit to preach, one of his regular prayers is that he would be a prophetic voice to the people that morning that he's called to shepherd. I love that prayer. He's not claiming to be a capital P prophet, but he's asking of the Lord, God the Holy Spirit, the one who gives gifts for the edification of the church, that if he would see fit, that he would find this voice useful in proclaiming the timeliness of God's timeless truth in a personal way in the moment. So in much the same way as brothers and sisters, we can speak prophetically, if I can say it that way without weirding too many of you out, we can speak prophetically into the lives of one another, not foretelling what will happen, but bringing God's word to bear by the power of the Holy Spirit in a timely way, God's timeless truth. So how do we know if this is just from God, if this is from God, or if this is just the ideas of men? Paul says, test it. How? How do we test that? How do we know if what we're receiving is actually from God? Well, God has given us His Word. We run it through the filter of God's revealed Word. In Acts 17, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 17, we find recorded an interaction between Paul and this group of believing Jews that he built a relationship with after leaving Thessalonica. In Acts 17, verse 11, we learn about these new believers, essentially, in a place called Berea, or Berea. They're just to the west of where the Thessalonians are. And Acts 17, verse 11 says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. We know the trouble that they caused in Thessalonica. For they received the word, this is Paul's word of the gospel, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. So Paul leaves Thessalonica, travels to Berea, and they receive Paul's gospel message with eagerness. And they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying about Jesus being God's Messiah, if what Paul was saying was accurate. They were testing Paul's words against the scriptures, and Paul commends them for it. Don't just listen to what someone says from the pulpit, but test it against God's perfect and authoritative word. How do we know if the work among us is of the Holy Spirit? We test it by the word of God. This is another reason why the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura is so significant, because it's God's word 
not our opinion about God's Word that is our first and final authority. It's the Word itself. So we should test everything by the Word of God so that we too are convinced by Scripture that our consciences now are conformed to Scripture and not opinion. So that we might say, like Martin Luther before those who were telling him to recant, Martin Luther was being told to recant for arguing things like justification by faith alone. He was told to recant for, for things like the improperness of, of purchasing for themselves spiritual uh, bonus points, essentially, in the selling of indulgences. Or the fact that Luther was championing that, that each man and woman should be able to read the Scripture in their own language and not just be told, this is what the Bible says from someone else. Luther said this, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Test everything by God's Word. And then Paul says, Hold fast all that is good and abstain, which is stay away from every form of evil. Paul says, hold fast to the good and flee from evil. Rather than ask, how, how close to the dark can I walk before I'm actually walking in the dark? The calling is to walk fully in the light in order to expose the dark. So these 15 odd things, this is the, the work Paul's challenging the church to walk in, to labor in doing. And so how, in this, most of this section is now taken up by these instructions, how does this sermon not just become a list of try harder, do better? How do we guard against falling into a false gospel of salvation and justification by our works and our rule keeping? I think we have to lay hold of the biblical truth that Paul outlines in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's essentially saying this, work out your salvation. This is the working out of your faith, Paul continues in uh, Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work, and in our working, God is working. Which brings us to our second point today. I promise two and three are way shorter. If the bulk of what Paul's saying here is there's work for us to do, we can't neglect and forget the significance and the centrality of God's work, which anchors it all. This benediction from Paul in verses 23 and 24 captures this beautifully. Just listen again to what Paul is praying for here and blessing the church with. Listen to this. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The God of peace himself. Sometimes good leadership is delegation. And in this case, God doesn't delegate this. The God of peace himself. What does he do? Sanctifies you completely. That is all of you, spirit, soul, body, so that your whole self might be what? Kept blameless, pure, not guilty at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will surely do it. 
the one who calls you, cleans you, and will keep you as you're conformed to the image of his son. Paul's prayer of benediction, his, his massive petition, his ask of the Lord here, his plea is that God would make them holy. And as we already read, it is God's will that they would be sanctified. And it's covered, this, this, this prayer of asking that God would make them holy is covered with this assurance that he himself will do it, that he will finish what he started. A pastor that I've been uh, just listening to in my downtime more often lately, Pastor H.B. Charles, he said this, and I, I commend it to you and him to you. He says this, it is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. Love that. One, it helps me remember. Two, it's awesome. Think about it. It is God's will that God's Spirit, through the Word, would make God's people, His children, look like Jesus. So in Christ, we are made righteous. We are justified, made right, by grace, through faith, not by our works, so that none of us can boast. Based on Christ's work, finished, we are made holy. What that means is we are positionally holy in Christ Jesus. So when the Father looks at us in Christ, He sees Christ. That's good. That's real good for us. And Paul is calling us to see that living by faith here means walking in such a way so that we might reflect outwardly that which we already are positionally. We cannot make ourselves holy. I just want to be real clear on that. But we can walk in the holiness that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we're called to do so. To quote Pastor Charles one more time, he says, the fact that God calls us is his divine activity. But the fact that God is faithful is his divine character. What he does is rooted in who he is. God is the faithful one, and he's responsible, if you will, to finish what he's begun. The scriptures testify to this. I, the Lord, do not change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. From Numbers chapter 23, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should have to repent of any wrongdoing. If God tells us that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it, he will surely do it. And his call to his sons and his daughters is to walk in it. And just so we don't miss how all this actually works, our final point this morning comes from the very last verse of this book, that it's all grace. It's all grace. See, after this benediction, uh, uh, this prayer, Paul asks them to pray for him and his fellow laborers. He encourages them to greet one another in a very specific way. There's some of you who are clamoring for the meet and greet to come back to our normal flow of service. Maybe we'll just employ it this way, to greet one another with a holy kiss. This is a little different than the like, good morning, how you doing handshake, isn't it? Our American sensibilities don't have this like cheek kiss thing. This could get weird real quick, right? And then Paul says, uh, I charge you 
to make sure this letter be read to the rest of the church, which, as an aside, speaks to the authority that Paul has here and the authority of the letter itself to be included as God's revealed word, the Scriptures. And then Paul closes with this, the final verse, verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Why is this significant? My Bible is just one page. You can turn your Bibles back one page or maybe scroll down one swipe if you're using a digital Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And here to close the letter, Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul doesn't just sign this letter off with, cordially yours, Paul. Paul closes in the same way he began, bathes in the gospel of the grace of God. May you know and experience and walk in God's grace. To quote the late philosopher Dallas Willard, he says, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. When Paul says God's grace to you, it's grace to believe, it's grace to walk, it's grace to have faith, it's grace to labor as well. It is the grace of God at work in us that enables us to be patient, that enables us to be kind and gentle with those who are weak or with those who are suffering. It's the grace of God at work in us that enables us to rejoice in the midst of tragedy or praise in the midst of terrible news or pain. It's the grace of God at work in us that enables us to love and obey God's word, to pursue godliness and righteousness, holding on to the good and abstaining from evil. So as we close this first letter of Thessalonians, River City, let's remember all that God has already done in us, all that he will do for us, and to not neglect what he is still doing now in and through us, so that living in light of the hope to come, we're reminded that there is work to be done. There's, we're called to walk, and we can trust that God is at work in us by his Spirit and by his grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are indeed faithful. We prayed it earlier, we pray it again, that you are faithful even when we are not. And that in your kindness, you call us to yourself. You clean us. Cover us. You promise to keep us. You are conforming us to the image of your Son. Pray that even now, this morning, that we would be receptive and responsive to the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction, bringing encouragement where we're weary, bringing light to dark places. And would we walk in this light? Would you give us hope for the promise of what's to come? and equip us for all that we need to labor well here. Encourage us as we come to the communion table that we might take fresh nourishment and encouragement from remembering all that Christ has done 
to purchase for us salvation. In his name we pray, amen.